Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Because they are mobs. Lincoln also warned that the lawless in spirit will become lawless in practice because of mob violence, seeing no consequences for crimes. The mob doesn't stop at statues. Rioters have already torched police precincts and low-income housing in Minneapolis. Churches and synagogues have been vandalized. Next, perhaps the mob will target the homes of police officers. And soon enough, the mob may come for you and your home and your family. Dan Whitfield, who is running against Tom Cotton in Arkansas. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, definitely glad to talk with you. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, Tom Cotton has recently been in the news. He wrote a uh, pendant op-ed that was in the New York Times, and I want to I want to start the conversation off discussing this. And it was basically calling okay. for a form of martial law, where he was saying that we should send the troops in, send the actual military in to the cities where protests are going on to deal with the protesters. And it was a pretty offensive authoritarian article. Uh, the New York Times got a lot of pushback for publishing it. And of course, some folks were saying that was an affront to free speech. Um, but what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, number one, so the first thing he did was he called for an overwhelming show of force against American citizens that are merely expressing their First Amendment constitutional rights and that was completely uncalled for. At the same time, he was calling for no quarter, no quarter orders, which are actually against the Geneva Codes, and it's a war crime to issue no quarter orders. So it was really surprising to see that he was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess I'll just stick with dumb enough to Fascist? publish. <laughs> yeah, he's, He's a little uh, a little fascist. <laughs> I mean, asking um, for no, it was no really quarter against your own citizens is pretty extreme. Yeah, that is very extreme, and especially with what's going on in Portland right now, it becomes very, very relevant because he's kind of doubled down on his op-ed, and now he's saying that insurrectionists, um, you know, need to be handled through federal force, and they're sending in troops, they're kidnapping people. It's it is yeah. insane. Yeah. Cancel culture. We hear that in the news a lot these days. The idea that we all need safe spaces from mean words, trigger warnings on op-eds or TV shows that might constitute a microaggression. This is the language of the campus social justice seminar but increasingly, it's the language of our workplace and our culture. We saw an instance of it just last week at the New York Times. I published an op-ed there that said simply, while we respect peaceful protesters, we can have zero tolerance for looting and rioting. And if the police are overwhelmed or outnumbered, the National Guard and, if necessary, federal troops have to restore order. It's got support from a large majority of Americans, if you believe the polls. New York Times published it. The editorial page editor defended it publicly. The publisher defended the decision publicly. But a woke child mob at the New York Times rose up and demanded, heads on pikes, they demanded that the op-ed be taken down. They demanded that the grown-ups Maybe I should say the supposed grown-ups who run the New York Times apologize. And that is exactly what happened. In a what could only be called a struggle session from the cultural revolution and the greatest traditions of Mao, the publisher of the New York Times fired the editorial page editor. He reassigned the deputy editorial page editor. He apologized, prostrating himself in front of the woke child mob. And he said that we'll do much better. And the new editorial page editor has told everyone at the Times, if you see anything that gives you the slightest pause, please contact me immediately. It is yeah. insane. Yeah. It's the Department of Homeland Security, and they're not even identifying themselves. I guess the thing that most disturbs, disturbs me about the situation is that 
the most constitutional thing you can do is protect First Amendment rights. And, and your right to protest is ingrained in that, right? Without protest, what do you have? And I don't understand what Tom Cotton or Trump or the DHS agents that are, are acting in this regard, I don't understand how they're justifying their actions in this respect because these folks are just exercising their First Amendment rights. Yeah, and this situation was actually de-escalating before they sent in DHS. Yeah. You know, the protests were dying down, they were having less participants, and then DHS comes in, starts, uh, they rent a bunch of little minivans that are unmarked, and they're driving around in military uniforms, just hopping out of the vans, picking people up, taking them back into the vans and driving off, basically abducting people. And this caused so much outrage that the protests started growing and growing and growing back to the scales where they were after George Floyd's murder went without justice for so long. Exactly. So what do you think Tom's motivation is in writing this op-ed? Is it, is it his underlying racism? Is it uh, a penchant for, for authoritarianism? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? It's really hard to say what's taken behind that noggin of his. Uh, I, I suppose most of the things that he's doing right now are just helping promote his 2024 presidential campaign. Ah. That's really all he's got his eyes on right now. And we can actually see that with the way that he's spending his campaign funds. He's already spent over three and a half million dollars of his 2020 campaign funds on advertisements in like Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Iowa, in these key battleground states, just promoting Donald Trump and then putting his picture of him in his army uniform at the end. That's wild. So that's what I he's didn't know he was doing mind. that. That's really wild. Yeah, he hasn't really been in Arkansas campaigning. He hasn't been talking to his constituents. The first time we saw him here in Arkansas campaigning was around a week ago when the United States Attorney General, William Barr, came to visit. And we actually were able to get William Barr, Tom Cotton, the Attorney General of Arkansas, Leslie Rutledge, in the same room in a closed-door meeting. So my opponent's meeting with our state Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney General. Do, do we know why, why that's occurring? Why is it occurring? Well, we are actually in a lawsuit right now for ballot access. So it's we have a lot to catch up on. It's been we so do. long since you all had me. Uh, you guys had me last July. So it's been about a year and a lot has happened since then. So right. Okay, so what's the lawsuit off, over the ballot access? Is it because you're running as an independent? Yes, uh, partially yes. So. We'll start kind of from the beginning and I'll try to work my way through it as quickly as possible because uh, it's a lot to talk about. So last year, the first thing the GOP uh, state legislators tried to do was was they changed our laws for third parties to get ballot access. They raised the amount of signatures needed from 10,000 to 26,000. So what that did was that made it for third parties a lot harder to get ballot access. Now, the Libertarian Party of Arkansas sued them and they were able to overturn that state law and get it reduced from 26,000 signatures back down to 10,000 signatures. At that point, the Libertarian Party, um, for them to get ballot access, they have a different set of rules to go by than an independent. They get to choose a 90-day window to collect 10,000 signatures. So they collect, they actually, they paid a canvassing company more than $55,000 last year to collect their 10,000 signatures to get ballot yeah. access. Now, at the same time that the GOP was making it harder for third parties to get ballot access for this election here, they had dirt on the Democrat. They knew the Democrat had fraudulent FEC filings, and they kept that dirt. They actually found this back in May of last year, and they held on to it until one hour after the filing deadline. And then they released a press release one hour after, after the filing deadline that they were launching an estimate. FEC investigation into fraudulent filings, and one hour after that, the Democrat dropped out. Right. There is no Democrat in our race. They blackmailed him out. So they tried to make it harder for third parties, and then they blackmailed the Dem out, and they were really trying to get Tom Cotton to run unopposed. And that's why you see in all the headlines, Tom Cotton's running unopposed, when realistically he's not. Um, it's a false narrative that they're pushing to try to help build his steam when he's he was actually just voted the least liked person in Arkansas by the yeah. Arkansas time. Uh, <laughs> so they're trying to help him why. out. 
Oh, man. So now, as an independent for ballot access for my primary, I needed to get 10,000 signatures. But unlike the Libertarian Party, I had a 90-day window that was set from February 1st until May 1st. Okay. Right when COVID was hitting. So on March 13th, our governor, Asa Hutchinson, declared a state of emergency because of COVID-19, and he banned large gatherings and implemented social distancing policies. What that did was that took away 60% of our signature collection time. We only had about 40% of the time before orders from the state hampered our signature collection efforts. So we were only able to get 6,514 signatures, which was not 10,000. What I had done was I reached out to every other independent candidate running in Arkansas. We all got together. I drafted a letter. I got five other independents, because there aren't very many of us, uh, to sign our letter, and we sent it off to the governor. Uh, Several weeks later, we heard from an interview that he had received our letter and sent it to his legal team for counsel and never did anything else about it. So we next sent that letter to the Secretary of State, John Thurston, and John Thurston completely ignored it. Um, I contacted his office after a few weeks to, you know, because I had actually sent it, I believe, three times certified after I was sure that they got it. Um, I called him, you know, to double check and I was told by his staff that he does not have the authority to grant us relief in a signature reduction, digital uh, signatures or an extension or anything like that. Mm -hmm. He does not have the authority. That's what they told us. Okay. So we took the next step and began a legal battle and we are suing the secretary of state, John Thurston, for ballot access at this point. Okay. Uh, So it has been a very a very interesting campaign. Uh, it's been very emotional, very stressful. And without the support of so many amazing people, I don't even think I'd be able to keep it up, but they keep me going. <laughs> right. So now if, so that's where we're at. So if you don't get on the ballot, then everything is for naught. That's very frustrating. Well, here's something also that's very, very interesting. Governor Asa Hutchinson, The Secretary of State, John Thurston, and then when we're suing the Secretary of State, his defense counsel is the Attorney General, Attorney General Leslie Rutledge. All three of these people have taken money from Tom Cotton, from personal donations, from his uh, campaign donations, and he even created a political action committee, Rangers Lead the Way, and he donated to them through that as well. So they took his money, and now they're using their elected positions to try to help him suppress the ballot. How crazy is that? So did the Libertarian get on the ballot? The Libertarian is on the ballot, yes. And what about the Green Party? The Green Party, they were unable to get signatures this year. They don't have any members on the ballots. (sighs) Yeah. No, uh, unfortunately, the Libertarian guy, he just doesn't have it in him. He's a stay-at-home dad. Um, I mean, he's a really nice guy. He's just, he doesn't have what it takes to beat Tom Cotton, unfortunately. You really have to have motivation you have to have fire you have to have support you have to be willing to do what it takes to win this race against tom cotton because he is such a dangerous man (laughs) he he really yeah and he boosts his base up he gets them excited and riled up with i hate to use these words but stupid op-eds like the one where he suggests an overwhelming show of force and no quarter against protests Right. So, but how much, how much of his base does the voting population consist of? Is there enough folks there that would give him a win no matter what? Oh, I guarantee you, if my name is on the ballot in November, he will no longer be a United States Senator. We will most definitely beat him. He does have a base, but it's a really small niche group. I would think Uh, so. And they've been getting smaller and smaller. A lot of the reasons that he got elected, number one, he campaigned on not repealing the Affordable Care Act until there was a replacement. But he's actually voted six times to repeal to repeal it with no replacement given. He campaigned on, uh, you know, cutting taxes and lowering the deficit. Well, unfortunately, our deficit since then has gone from 16 trillion to 26 and a half trillion. So he kind of failed on that campaign promise. And then another thing that he really ran on, he got a lot of the farmers votes because he talked about protecting our, our cans and farms, right. where on the contrary, what he ended up doing was supporting this trade war. And right now we are having more our cans and farmers filed chapter 12 bankruptcy than ever before. Our farmers are losing everything. And you know what his response was? His response was, 
oh, they don't mind doing it at all for America. Well, I guarantee you, sir, people losing their homes and their farms and everything, they do mind. They do mind. <laughs> yeah. I think, look, so, I think overwhelming plurality of voters, and I don't think this is a right versus a left thing. I think the overwhelming plurality of voters understands that the enemy at this point is the 1%, the plutonomy, the very wealthy elites that have done nothing but extract wealth from the economy. And Tom Cotton has clearly been part and parcel to helping those folks out. So I think, you know, and I think another thing, you're talking about not getting rid of the ACA unless it's replaced with something. Well, obviously, Medicare for all is, is the clear winner there. And I think here again Absolutely. is where we see a plurality of voters supporting the idea of Medicare for all. It's not just not just on the Democratic side. It's both parties. And, and we are the 49th richest state. And what that means is the only state that's more poor than Arkansas is Mississippi. So programs like Medicare for all would benefit so many Arkansan families. Yeah. Our average household income here is only $40,000 a year. And with the, with the household income of $40,000 a year, for Medicare for all, that means you will be paying $440 for the entire year to cover your whole household, medical, dental, vision. And then it will have a $200 cap on prescription drug costs, where a lot of people here will pay that in their first prescription fill on in January. Right. So exactly. it will really benefit our Kansans. We have to get Medicare for all passed. And what I have pledged to do is I will protect the Affordable Care Act and I will help expand it until we can replace it with Medicare for all. Yeah, I think I think reality is telling us what we need is Medicare for all. I don't think, you know, the ACA in, in so many regards is still a handout to profiteering and with health insurers, et cetera. And, Absolutely. Which is why it's so troubled, right? Um, also, it really talk, is. Let's also talk about something locally there in Arkansas in regards to Medicaid. Um, apparently, my understanding is recently the state tried to attach a work requ requirement to receiving Medicaid and that that's now turned into a legal battle. Have you been following this? Um, I've looked at it briefly. Uh, they actually did implement the work requirement here in Arkansas. And I, I think it was like more than 10,000 Arkansan families lost their Medicaid coverage oh, because of it. And I mean, that, that is so unfair. It is because a lot of these families, I mean, a lot of them can't work. A lot of them want to work, but they just right. can't. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of the most vulnerable among us, especially when we're in the poorest state. We have to take care of people. And if we can afford to give like a Wall Street a six and a half trillion dollar injection, if we can afford to bail out big banks in 2008, for $16.8 trillion, we can afford to pay for medical coverage for low-income families that need the help but can't make that much, you know, enough money to pay for their medical. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, we, it's just, there, there's a false scarcity in the country and there's definitely a class war and the class war is, is, is the rich people just waging never-ending war on the poor people. And what mm -hmm. really slays me is a lot of these folks I mean, how many yachts do you need? 27 yachts is, is, is not, you need a 28th one? I mean, why are they so greedy? Why can't they understand that, that the country... Well, you need a different one. You know, you need a different yacht for every day of the month. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's man. almost the thinking. It's that grotesque. And the problem uh -huh. is this is, is eventually when you keep playing into the income inequality, you're also going to have a problem with increasing crime because a lot of that's going to be uh, socioeconomic problems. Like... We're seeing an increase here in California of people breaking into cars. And mm -hmm. it's not because people want to steal cars. It's because they're desperate. You know, I yeah. have a friend who had her car broken into and the person stole her credit card and went to Albertsons and charged $800 on her card at Albertsons. That was the only thing. I mean, wow. that just tells you. Yeah. So it is hard to really get angry at that stuff because I understand what's motivating it. And I'm very frustrated because all of this is preventable. And then we have, you know, people like Tom Cotton who are, you know, calling, you know, protesters insurrectionists who are, <laughs> he, who are promoting the fact that crime is going up. They're like, look at, oh, crime's going up in democratically run cities. Well, it's like crime is going up in places where people can't afford to That's buy right. food. That's right. It, yeah. It has it's nothing crazy. to do with democratically led cities. It has everything to do with income inequality. And both party elites have contributed to that. So the problem really isn't. And that's why and we really need to make sure our extra unemployment COVID benefits are ending in just 
not even 10 days. In eight days, people are going to lose that extra $600 a week. And how are people going to be paying their mortgages, their utilities, their car payments? We're going to have repossessions. We're going to have people. It's just so scary to see what's going on. Oh, man. I I know we we had like, was it 12 million Americans miss their rent payment this month? 12 million people. What we need, we did the CARES Act. And basically the CARES Act was a giant slush fund for corporations and billionaires to expand their wealth. I mean, ever since the CARES Act came out, our billionaire class has made more than $565 billion. It's insane. insane. What we need is a people's act. We need legislation that is going to put $2,000 a month into every single social security card holder's pocket until the pandemic is over. And when we do something like that, you're going to see crime go down because people can buy food. They can pay their bills. We're going to see suicides go down. It's going to be all around better for our society. And we have to make sure we can get this legislation passed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If if they cared about saving capitalism, they would implement an emergency UBI right now because really that's the only way to save it. Otherwise, I don't see how this doesn't end in total disaster. Absolutely. And I mean, we are America. We are the great experiment. And we've been playing with supply side economics, Reaganomics, uh, trickle down, whatever you want to call it, since the early 80s. And we have seen it has failed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we have seen how it has widened the gap of our inequality. It has lowered wages right. and people have been struggling since. Now is the time where we can experiment with trickle up economics and we can use this a demand side economics. We can, you know, use this as a chance to look at it, see how it benefits our society and I guarantee you it's going to be- benefit us in a positive way and then we can move forward from there. But right. the way we're doing it now, it's, we're just, we're failing ourselves. We're failing our citizens and it's inexcusable and people are dying because of it. No, hundred percent. Um, so another part of your platform is centered on campaign finance, which I think is important. There's currently 29 plus lobbyists for every Congress person in uh, Washington, DC. It's outrageous. Um, so it talk with me a little bit about your plans in that area. Sure. I've got a lot of ideas. I'm young. um, I'm a troubleshooter by trade. I was a cable guy for many years. And, you know, I, I was trained to look for problems and come up with solutions. So campaign finance reform is one of the most important things that we need to do if we are to take our government back from billionaires and special interests and return it to the people. Right now, A majority of our legislators have taken huge sums of money from billionaires and corporations. And in exchange for taking all those huge campaign bribes, they vote on legislation that hurts us and benefits their donors. And we saw this, uh, Tom Cotton, he took eight and a half million dollars from the Koch brothers. And in return, he voted on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which Mm -hmm. gave in a temporarily estate tax repeal. It repealed the estate tax for one year. And you know what happened during that year? David Koch died and his widow inherited $61 billion untaxed, taking $25 billion out of our society that could have went back to us. Why would they? It is outrageous. It's become a pay to play scheme. And, you know, that's why realistically our our founding fathers set us up as a representative republic, and yeah. now we're not even a representative republic. We're not even a democracy. We are an oligarch, and we have to fix that. And the first step is to get money out of politics. We have to overturn Citizens United. Corporations are not people, and if corporations want to be people, then their CEOs and executives should be held criminally liable for the damages that they do and that they cause uh, harms and things like that against American consumers. If they want to start taking legal liability, sure, you can be people too. But as long as there are companies like Monsanto that can have a product on the shelf that has been proven to cause cancer and they've paid, you know, say a billion dollars in fines to a family for giving them cancer, but that product is still on the shelf today, that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. You know, part of uh, some of the recent uh, actions that Trump has taken for for COVID, like he forced the, the... felt forced, quote unquote, the meat plants to stay open, right? Because he said there was a bottleneck. Well, uh-huh. the bottleneck that he was speaking of was really about liability protection. He granted- the- Actually, um, being here in Arkansas, I have a small insight to that, which oh, you're just going to blow your that. mind. 
So we have a lot of poultry plants here for Tyson. And yeah, I, I spoke to this exactly poultry right. worker. So you know what they did? They put out these mass ads. We are on a chicken shortage. We need to hire people. We need to fill up the lines, do all this stuff. And they went on a mass hiring spree. And what they did was they produced so much chicken. They sent all that chicken to China, hundreds of thousands of pounds of chicken we have been shipping to China while we are supposedly on a chicken shortage that they're hiring people for using government funding to pay for this advertising. We're not having a chicken shortage. They no. just wanted to process more chicken to sell to well, foreign nations. Exactly. But not only that, he gave them liability protection from being uh, responsible if the workers got COVID-19, which a lot of them did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and our governor, Asa Hutchinson, actually did something similar. He issued an executive order uh, basically eliminating any liability from any business in Arkansas. So if you go to a restaurant and they have a no mask, uh, yeah, a no mask policy, then if you eat there and say every single person who ate there that they got COVID, the restaurant is not liable. It's they these people are at least, putting. I will say this: at least in that situation, somebody's making a choice to go out to a restaurant. The problem yeah. I have with the Tyson situation is these workers are basically being told they have to go back to work. They can no longer collect unemployment if they choose not to right? They're being yeah. forced back to work. It's not they safe. Are. It's clearly not safe. And then they're saying the workers cannot sue the company because they're not supplying them with COVID-19 protections. And my understanding is on these uh, plants, on these worker lines, that they're very close together. And there's a lot of people forced to, because it moves really quickly. So it's obviously ripe for having the virus spread, which is why we've seen mass increase in the state of Arkansas on COVID. It's all related to the, the meat plants, mm -hmm. the processing. We begin today's show looking at the coronavirus outbreak in meatpacking plants across the United States. As U.S. beef, pork and poultry processing plants fake a, face a public health crisis and a growing number of infected workers, last week, President Trump signed an executive order barring governments from closing meat plants. The order declares meat plants as critical infrastructure. At least 20 meatpacking workers have died from COVID-19. More than 5,000 have fallen ill from the disease. That number is expected to be far higher due to a lack of testing. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, at least a thousand people have tested positive for the virus at one Smithfield pork plant, accounting for more than half the confirmed cases in the entire state of South Dakota. At least six workers at a JBS beef packing plant in Greeley, Colorado, have died from COVID-19. Despite this, the plant reopened last week after a short closure without testing all its workers. And the Tyson-Columbus Junction processing plant in Iowa reopened in late April despite the deaths of two workers from COVID-19. A meat worker from the Tyson plant spoke to Democracy Now! about conditions there during the pandemic. She's an Im immigrant from Guanajuato, Mexico, and asked to remain anonymous out of fear of retaliation. There was a young man that I know was still going to work, even though he said he had been sick for two weeks. I don't know why Tyson didn't detect that, that people who were sick were still going to work. This only made things worse. Later, I realized that a lot of people at that plant were infected. A man who had worked there died, and there were a lot of people in critical condition at the hospital. I'm not sure if they're still there because, truthfully, I haven't left my house or spoken to anyone recently, so I'm not sure of what the status of their health is. But I know many people were at the hospital in critical condition, and they are all people who work at Tyson. And they've actually been increasing the lines, the speed on the lines, making the Why lines move faster so it's that more dangerous for the workers. It does. It's it's all about money. It's all, it's all about, about money. 100% money. it is. Um, you know, this we is need the to level start of greed people. coming out of the oligarchs in this country. So tell me something, um, Dan. Are the people of Arkansas finally seeing this stuff for what it is? And are they really willing to say that enough is enough? I'm not buying this um, Koch brother Tea Party nonsense that, you know, this is about freedom and all this other kind of crap, the rhetoric that they normally use. Are they seeing it for what it is, that the, the wealth extraction coming from the 1%? You know, 
people really are starting to see what's going on. They really are understanding how their lives could be so much better if they just had better representation. People, right. you know, people are waking up and they understand. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why I'm able to run and get so much support. Yeah. Uh, right now, our campaign is 100% grassroots. We don't take money from even political parties, political action committees, uh, giant corporations, billionaires, none of that. It is completely funded by working class Americans. So people are, even all over the country, are starting to wake up and be like, enough is enough. We want true representatives. We want to get rid of this corruption. And we want people that are going to fight for us and not people putting money into their pockets. Right. And one of the like unique things about my campaign is I'm, not, I'm actually not even going to run a re-election campaign in 2026. I am going to win here in November. And then if I am doing a good job, people will vote for me. My name will be on the ballot, but I am not going to waste my constituents' hard-earned money running a re-election campaign, running advertising. If I'm doing a good job, they'll vote for me. If not, then right. so be it. But I won't have to take huge bribes from corporations to be able to run these re-election campaigns, which is why these candidates do that. Right. It's no expensive. Questions. But they've also been able to buy public opinion by doing that. That it's been effective in the past. I mean, when they when they talk about you know here's a here's a good example when they weaponize the word socialism, right? Socialized yeah. medicine. It's socialism. It's evil. Like they 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 spend money on these things because it's effective marketing, and they're able mm -hmm. to get away with all the things that they're getting away with. But I think that that's finally changing. I'm hoping that. That's correct. Um, and I think the idea that most people see universal medical care as a good thing and not as the scary socialized medicine is just part and parcel to having people have their wool pulled off of their eyes and seeing, seeing the platonomy for what it is. I mean, you have to have some kind of capitalism. I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but you do have to have some kinds of capitalism. But we need to make sure that where we have capitalism, it has nothing to do with controlling people's lives and people's health. The healthcare system cannot be a for-profit business. Yeah. It has to be a for-people business. Yeah. If you want to have a for-profit business, go run a Walmart or something like that. But we have to put people above profits. And as long as our healthcare system is working in such a way that insurance companies and hospitals and doctors are making huge sums of money, they're going to keep taking advantage of people. It, one of the things Donald Trump, I think he's trying to do that I actually agree with, is he's trying to make it so that if you go to the hospital, that they have to tell you what it's going to cost for what they're going to do before they do it. Because we have this big problem of going to the hospital for some kind of checkup or whatever, and then you get serviced. That's not a good way to say it, but that's how I'll say it. <laughs> After, you know, they examine you or do what they need to do, they hit you with this giant bill. And it's insane. Um, I actually, I had lost partial hearing in my left ear. So I had went to the ENT and he wasn't able to figure out what was wrong with my ear. So instead he's like, oh, well, you have a deviated septum. I can fix that. So he still got his surgery out of me. Um, wow. Two weeks after that surgery, I went back in there because I couldn't breathe out of both nostrils. And he's nice. like, he looked in there. He's like, oh, well, I don't see anything. Do you want me to look deeper? I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I obviously can't breathe out of one. Sure. So he pulls up a camera. He looks at my nose afterwards, hits me with a bill for $500 to look in my nose. It's wow. like, I, if I knew it was going to cost you $500 to spend 10 seconds to look up there and say, nope, don't see anything, then I probably wouldn't have done it. Right. <laughs> but that's just the kind of healthcare system we have where we have people being taken advantage of. And we mm -hmm. do have to protect Americans from, you know, predatory practices from doctors. And I mean, Medicare for all, that's the go-to, that's the solve all right there. You know, yeah. if they don't have a financial interest in doing things, then they're going to take care of you. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the other areas of your platform that uh, we should talk about? Are you supporting the Green New Deal? And is environmentalism becoming a thing in Arkansas now too? Or what are your thoughts in that area? So the Green New Deal is very, very important to my campaign. The climate crisis is not a hoax. It is real. We are seeing it around us every single day in our flooding and tornadoes and giant wildfires. We just lost a billion animals in Australia in just a few months. A billion animals died to wildfires to the point where they're saying that the koala bear's natural habitat could be extinct. We may not have koala bears in the wild by the time my daughter has children. 
And we really have to make sure that we're getting ready to tackle these giant natural disasters that are coming. We just saw Michigan just a couple months ago, they had three dams fail in a row and had to evacuate a city of more than 10,000 people. We have to be prepared. We are the natural state here in Arkansas. It's very important to us that we are clean. And I think as someone promoting renewable energy sources, what I see as the future of our energy is I see rural areas using solar, hydro, and wind energy. And I see our more urban areas using thorium reactors. I think that's the best way to start combating the way that we're burning fossil fuels in an unnecessary way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, of course, there's many other things we need to do. We need to rebuild our public transit infrastructures. We have to make sure we have electric public transit. We need to make sure we have high speed rail going across our country, you know, uh, connecting the New York to San Francisco. We need to do many, many different things. We need electric vehicles. There's just so much we need to do, but it is very important that we start doing it. We need, if, like, let's see here. Uh, CO2 parts per million today, what is it at? So today, right now, our CO2 parts per million is at 416.39, 416.39. It has gone up so much yeah. just in the last 10 years. We need to keep an eye on this and we need to make sure that we're reducing the amount of fossil fuels we use every day. We right. can do it. It can be done. But the problem is, is the fossil fuel industry is so giant. They're so wealthy that they will continue to bribe our legislators into ignoring the facts. Yeah. Um, one of the important you know, aspects where that comes into contact with my campaign is Tom Cotton takes a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. He is one of the people who told Trump about clean coal when you yeah. wash coal, you know? <laughs> and you know what? There's no such thing as clean coal. (laughs) So we do have to make sure that we're getting legislators into office who aren't going to take huge bribes from the fossil fuel industry, who can start moving forward so that we can better society, better our health and better the planet at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Um, So, you know, you have a lot of farmland there in Arkansas and a big source of pollution here in California is our, our farming, our factory farms. Uh, and also they have exemption for some of the diesel, uh, large diesel trucks and tractors and things that they use. Does, does that affect uh, Arkansas in the same way? Absolutely. We have a ton of hog farms here. We have chicken farms. But I mean, our hog and chicken, our poultry industry and our pork industry, they really are a big part of Arkansas. If we are going to change that in any way. We need to offer all of our farmers an alternative that will make them more money while being better for our environment. Yeah. Uh, that's about, why I promote Instead it. of like, let me ask you a question. What about, you know, I noticed when I was in Iowa that there were a lot of co-ops in Iowa, which I thought was quite surprising. And I think worker-owned co-ops are fantastic. Here you have a situation in which the workers are all owning a part of the business, so it's not a corporation. Um, it's not capitalism in the sense that it's, you know, a capitalist owning everything and, and exploiting the workers, right? It's the workers owning mm-hmm. the business. What about developing some sort of a co-op system in Arkansas? Does anybody discuss that? Because it's been very effective in Iowa. Um, I haven't really heard much about it, um, but it's definitely something I can look more into. But what I think the future for Arkansas is going to be, honestly, in my opinion, again, is him. So Arkansas mm, actually okay. used to be the number three producer of hemp in America. I did not and know then that. hemp became illegal. But in 2017, with the new ag bill, hemp is now legal again. Okay. So we have very, very fertile farmlands. And actually in our Delta region along the Mississippi River, that we have some of the most fertile lands in America. But these areas, these counties are our poorest counties. There are counties that are losing population that people are leaving from. There are counties where average household incomes are as low as $23,000 a year. So what I foresee for Arkansas is I would like, I mean, it wouldn't be in my hand as a United States Senator, but what I would like to see done is I would like to see us become the number one producer of hemp in America in this region that needs all the help. Now, Mm -hmm. by doing that, what we can also do is we can start processing it. We can turn it into building materials, bio 
diesel fuel. We can turn it into plastics, clothing, paper, uh, all sorts of different things. Now, what I imagine that would be the best route to do to go uh, about doing this, though, is to require these facilities to only be built in counties with low average household income so that we can start to bring better jobs to people and help them make more money. Mm -hmm. So if we could become the number one producer, the number one exporter, and oh, don't even forget CBD oil because CBD oil is the thing now. Yeah, we can make a lot of money off hemp and go from being one of the poorest states in America to being one of the wealthiest states. We just need the leadership to do it. Uh, last October, I went to the Rural Farmer Appreciation Fish Fry and I spoke to hundreds of rural Arkansan farmers and they all every every person I spoke to, they want to grow hemp. They're down. They, yes. they see the money. They're talking to their friends in other states. They want to do it, but they can't afford to get started because it's so expensive. you got to buy the machinery. You have to have the manpower and it takes a lot of work. So what I would like to see done is I would like to and what I could help do as a United States senator is I would like to see our agricultural subsidies start to be divided more evenly because right well, now. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. The and 10% of our that, corporations are taking 70% of our subsidies. 70%? 10% of the corporations get 70%. That's it. One more time. 10% of the corporations, or the agricultural corporations, are getting 70% of the agricultural That's subsidies, yeah. while small farmers are filing They're chapter 12. Yeah. So this is, there is, therein lies the rub. That's why I was bringing up the idea of co-ops. Regardless of what the farmers grow, they're going to get screwed by these corporations. And my concern is, I mean, here's another example is we're seeing it in the legalized marijuana industry now. So there's like mm -hmm. these mini cartels that are cropping up in each one of the states that have legalized it. And they're not giving licensings, licenses to the little guy. And it's like turned into a big business versus everybody else. And in fact, to have a total mind blow, John Boehner, like the guy, the Republican guy that was like marijuana is a gateway drug for years, is now out there owning marijuana. <laughs> and he has um, stakes in several publicly traded marijuana firms and is saying everybody needs to start buying marijuana. Like it's. <laughs> Go figure. It's all about making money, right? It's insane. I mean, insane. I do support. <laughs> I support the federal decriminalization of cannabis, including nationally expunging cannabis-related convictions. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe that it should be up to the state voters to vote on whether or not it's medicinal, recreational, or not legal. I don't think it should be the federal government who comes in and does that. The federal right. government needs to have decriminalized. I think they're actually going to have to decriminalize it with all the states um, legalizing it. And I, I think it should be totally legal. Yeah. My concern, though, is is the way they're going about the legalization is they're handing it to big business and it's becoming a 1% platonomy thing as well versus something that's more egalitarian, which is why I, I'm like really trying to push people to consider starting worker-owned co-ops because I think these provide a very strong counterbalance to our current Definitely. corporate oligarchy. And we're seeing that really, uh, you know, that's really impacting us here in Arkansas as well because number one, patients cannot grow their own medicine. Number two, You're we have right. a limited amount that's of... <laughs> right? Why would you, let me ask uh, you this. Why would you legalize marijuana and then not allow people to just grow it in their backyard if they wanted to? Like, Right? Because it's not about the medicine. It's about the money, unfortunately. Right, right now, exactly people it. are still paying. People are paying $500 an ounce in a dispensary for their medicine. Oh, $500. And the if problem is, is we have such a limited amount of cultivators. I'm in my backyard just to be like, <laughs> take that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and like uh, our dispensaries, they, there's terrible quality in some of them. I've seen patients posting pictures every day of getting seeds and stems and complaining about yeah. their products. But who do they have to complain to? It's not like we they can go, you know, our dispensaries can go to a different cultivator. They don't right. have a choice. They so have we have to make sure so, that's yeah. part of the free market, right? That's capitalism. You have to have a choice. We need more yeah, no, growers. But capitalism isn't free market. That's the problem. It's capitalism is, is playing right to the capitalist and nobody else has never been a free market system. Right. And I think, I think that people are starting to recognize that here in Arkansas. And I yeah. think that's why so many people, it became, it was such a heavy red Republican state. I think that because of people realizing that right there, we are starting to become more of a, right-leaning state, but not a hard-right state. Yeah. 
Well, look, here's the thing, and I've said this often, the, it's not a right versus left problem, it's a 1% versus 99% problem. And I, I, my goal is to get folks from both sides of the aisle, voters, when I say folks, I mean voters. Obviously, the, the bot class, the elites, they're, they're part and parcel to like keeping the system in place, right? But if enough mm -hmm. voters see it for what it is and they start fighting back, that's how we're finally gonna get changed. But we are on an absolutely untenable path at this point. We cannot continue doing what we're doing. Eight, more than 80% of the new wealth created the last couple of years has gone to the 1%. The income inequality yeah. is absolutely outrageous. It's immoral and also it's not sustainable economically. We can't continue down this path. We really can. And when 1% is taking 83% of the wealth gain, a yeah. huge problem with that is that 1%, a lot of them are using legal loopholes to avoid taxation. No, so yeah, they take all this money that we're spending. Yeah. And then they don't even put it back into our no, economy, back they, into our society. They, buy they send it to offshore tax havens. They send it to Panama, to Switzerland, right. but they don't put it back into our society. That's right. And that's one of the biggest shames. And, you know, giant corporations are just as guilty as that. Look at Amazon. Look at Netflix. Uh, we have these huge corporations that are profiting hundreds of billions of dollars using government subsidies, but not paying any government taxes. Right. It's just crazy, everything that's going on. No, it's not But, I mean, that's all. Those are all symptoms of the problem. And the problem is allowing legislators to take money from special interests and billionaires in order to create those legal loopholes. That's what the problem is that we have to solve. Yeah, money and politics is the root of all evil. I agree with that. They have been able to buy, it's a bot Congress and they've legislated to their benefits for decades now. And it's not just the bot Congress, mm -hmm. it's also regulatory capture. It's corporations being able to put uh, their, their uh, what do you call the Self-regulation, basically. Yeah, Did you see Donald so Trump's executive order? Donald Trump signed an executive order, the COVID relief one, stating that any corporation can temporarily or permanently eliminate a regulation that is affecting their economic growth. Yeah. Temporary <laughs> or permanently, uh, it said. Yeah. He has allowed control. corporations to deregulate themselves. And that's how we end up with companies like Tyson that are putting these workers together, forcing them to work, making the lines move faster in an unsafe way. And there's just no way to hold them liable. There's no accountability. There's no, yeah, they can't sue because they've been given liability protection. So, um, you know, Tyson's one of the worst culprits as well. Are, are, so what are the workers doing now? Are they gonna strike? Or, I mean, a lot of them have really gotten sick. Well, a lot of the workers have COVID right now, unfortunately. Yeah. I think just one plant had like 247 people test positive the other day. Wow. Crazy. Wow. Uh, and we really need to make sure that, you know, it, and I think a lot of the COVID issues just comes back to the People's Act. We, if we give people enough money to stay home, to pay their yeah. bills, pay their mortgage, not lose their cars, not lose everything, then people are going to stay home and not catch COVID. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, again, is the solution to the problem to eliminate a lot of these other symptoms that we're seeing. Yeah. Th these workers are dying for Wall Street, quite literally, and it's not right. It isn't at all. It's crazy how a virus has kind of endorsed all of these progressive policies, whereas, you know, three or four years ago, people thought saying Medicare for all should be the norm. People, I mean, I was saying that three or four years ago, people were like, are you crazy? Like, it was a really not an accepted thing. And I, and now it's very accepted. And I think, you know, obviously Bernie Sanders has a lot to do with how that, that came about. And I mm -hmm. thank God for Bernie Sanders every day for what he's been able to do as far as moving the Overton window. But I still think, um, I still think the battle ahead is going to be a hard one because it's not just the voters. It's the bot Congress we have to get past. You know, I had an argument on Twitter the other day with uh, another pundit and even though she admitted we had a 70% plurality of voters that wanted Medicare for all, she said that wasn't enough. And I'm like, that, that, that just tells you how screwed up the damn system is. You're saying 70% of voters are saying they want this policy and it's not enough for us to get it? Yeah. Really? Is that really where we're it's at? Because our legislators, a lot of these, even the Democrats that are voting against Medicare for all are taking money from the health and pharmaceutical industries. They absolutely are. We have to end congressional lobbying 100%. We cannot afford to have congressional lobbying. And that is going to be the first step in returning our government 
that is from corporations for corporations to being by the people for the people. Yeah. So do you support the 28th Amendment, which would be the amendment to overturn Citizens United? Absolutely. We have to overturn Citizens United. Is there a state effort in Arkansas to uh, have a resolution about the 28th Amendment? Um, not that I know of right now, okay. but it is definitely something that we can contact our legislators here and talk about. And yeah. We should have some kind of state. But again, there's it's a, so hard. A, Dan, it's so hard because you have to get the a, people. Hang on. Uh-huh. There's an organization called American Promise that is doing this going state by state. They're working with Move to Amend. I would get in contact with them and see if maybe you could even help them with that effort. For sure. Uh, but, you know, the hardest part about is this is you have to get congressmen, you have to get the people taking money to vote on not being able yeah. to take money anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's tough. And I think public pressure, it's all going to have to be public pressure. Yeah, it's really hard to get legislators to vote on legislation that's going to cost them money. And I'll definitely look into the American promise right here. And we do need to make sure our state legislators start looking into things that will overturn Citizens United. And as the public attention gets more and more involved with the corruption, as we start to open their eyes and show them what's happening behind closed doors, then we can start getting people voted out. And as soon as we start getting people like Tom Cotton voting voted out who are taking tens of millions of dollars from special interests, then we can replace them with people who are like me, who are progressive, who aren't in it for the money, but in it for change. And that's when we can start to get real change. Um, in the news today, we had the almost every single Democrat, including all the Republicans, um, voted to pass a large bill once again. And Bernie Sanders had an amendment that he added that it would have cut the budget by 10% to give to other more important programs. And uh-huh. you didn't have every Democrat getting behind that. You had like 20 something. What's going on here? Well, the problem is the military industrial complex, they are bribing our Republicans and our Democrats. It's not a party thing. They know that they have to put money in everybody's pockets to prevent legislation like this from getting passed. So the military industrial complex is actually putting money in Republicans and in Democrats pockets. And what we need to do is we need to start by auditing the military budget. We need to figure out where our taxes are going, exactly where they're going. Because I believe right now, 40% of the military budget goes to blacked out programs. So right away, we don't even know where more than $350 billion is going, completely unaccounted for. We need to figure out where the money's being wasted and then reallocate that money that's being wasted, that's being basically funneled into the pockets of contractors and into the pockets of ex-legislators and funnel that money into social programs. But it's just hard to say how much money is that. I actually spoke with a veteran and he had explained to me that he was he worked in a convoy in Afghanistan. And while he was stationed overseas, they would drive around and deliver supplies to different areas. At one point, they got three truckloads full of these really nice fleece wool vests, like mm. really nice fleece vests, three trucks full of them. In July. In July. <laughs> so they drove around for like three months carrying these vests around and eventually they just burned them because they needed to get something else. So they literally burned them on the side of the road. So <sighs> the problem right there is that we paid a contract company for these vests. God only knows how much they actually were for each unit and how many there were in three truckloads. But we are paying companies to do things like that when we don't have to be. We just have defense contractors that are using these endless wars in American imperialism to funnel our taxes into their pockets. And we have to stop that. Once we stop doing that and we start bringing our troops home, then we can focus on instead of having a $700 billion military budget, which I think is like larger than the next 11 nations combined, then we can have a reasonable military budget that goes towards defense of our country and humanitarianism abroad. And then we can, you know, put the rest into our society, helping us programs like education for underprivileged children or feeding hungry children. Because 25% of children in Arkansas go to bed with a hungry stomach. Twenty one in four kids in Arkansas live in poverty. We could use that money to feed hungry kids. 
So there are many better uses of our tax dollars than just going into fat pockets. The amount of money we spend in defense budget is, is, is just terrible. It's outrageous. Um, so if people want to donate to your campaign, Dan, where's the best place for them to do that? Actually, I have one thing to add. I have a figure okay. that's going to blow your mind about the military industrial complex. <laughs> so here's a fun fact for you. Question. How much money do you think the United States of America, how many tax dollars have we spent developing nuclear weapons since the end of World War II? Oh. Just throw out a figure. Just guess. Ah, mm. I can't even imagine, Anne, honestly. It's going to be something enormous More? and scary, no doubt. Oh, more than $6.8 trillion. Oh. Now, another question. How what many nuclear point? weapons... What is the point of that? I mean, we already have enough nuclear weapons to blow each other up like 500 times. Like, the entire world, like exactly. 10 times over or more. It's crazy. It is crazy. But now, we haven't actually used a nuclear weapon in an act of hostility since World War II. So why are we wasting $6.8 trillion building nukes when we could have used that money for something else. Because right now, I mean, it's that realism, is... It's realism, it's the Cold War, it's the military-industrial complex pushing for more war. Is. There's a host of things at play here, and none of it's good. None of it's good. And it all it is is it's all one big giant scheme to funnel our taxes into contractors' pockets. Yeah. And we just have to put into it. But uh, if you wanted to donate to my campaign, or even if you want to just take a closer look at my campaign, my website is replacetomcotton.com. Yeah. So just go to my website, and I have all sorts of fun stuff on my website. You can click Meet Dan, and you can read my autobiography I wrote, kind of about myself, how I grew up, how I became to be who I am today. Uh, you can check out my policy page, which has way too many uh, policies on it. Uh, but I... I think that in this new age of democracy, we can't focus on three policies. I agree. What we need to do is look at all the problems and address every single one because we can't afford to continue working on three policies over six years. Right. Uh, another thing on there is my media tab. If you go to my media tab, you can actually see all my interviews. Um, I do a weekly live stream Q&A every single Saturday night at 6 p.m. So if you get some time, hop on my Facebook, on my YouTube, on my Twitter. And you can, you know, see me live, ask me questions, I'll answer them real time for you. Uh, if you go to my media tab, you can watch over 50 hours of live streams, too. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's yeah, great. I mean, it, that gives you a chance for you to get to know the uh, potential constituents in the state, and they can ask you questions. And honestly, you're right. Three, three policy things isn't enough. I think it's better to have more, and I like going on a, a page or a website and seeing pages of policy that... A, that a campaign supports because it gives you a really good idea of who this person is and where they stand. Right? Yeah. So check out my policy page. And then another thing on there that's pretty cool is, uh, well, I'll go over two more things real fast. So one is my expenses tab. Every single penny that has been spent from my campaign of donations has been listed on this spreadsheet underneath my expenses tab. You can see how I'm spending all my money to make sure that I'm spending it in the best possible way to give us a 100% transparent campaign, which I think is super important. And I hope that other candidates in the future will um, adapt to take certain or, you know, to follow this policy as well, where we show our expenses to make sure we have accountability towards how we're spending your money. I think that's very important. Awesome. And then my last thing is my ballot access. If you're curious about my ballot access, I've actually uploaded every single court document onto that tab so you can look through everything. Uh, so I suggest checking that out as well. <laughs> yeah, Dan, when do you expect to hear back on that? When will we know? Oh, we didn't even get into that, um, unfortunately. So, <laughs> so I did sue the Secretary of State, John Thurston. And yeah, no, you did tell us that part, but do you have any and idea after when? We, we had our day in court, we had our hearing, and that was back on May 27th. And it was in nine hour long hearing and I was cross-examined by the attorney general for two hours. You can read the transcript under the ballot access tab. The whole transcript is there. Um, after our hearing, it took the judge Baker, it took her four weeks to give us a ruling. Now, after four weeks, she ruled that we do not have standing for preliminary injunctive relief, but we do have standing for declaratory relief. Okay. What that means is she ruled in favor of John Thurston and against us. Oh. So 
We have appealed that decision and we have taken it up to the Eighth Circuit Courts. Now, it was a good thing that she did that. I think it was a favor for us because there have been lawsuits where candidates have sued John Thurston and they win their lawsuit and it gets just held up in court until after the election. So by ruling against us, that gave us the ability to appeal the ruling and expedite the appeal so that it can be done before the ballots are printed and before the election. If she would have ruled in our favor, the attorney general was ready to appeal and would have locked it up until after November. So it was good. It's a process. We're moving forward. And she did state in her ruling, we do have standing for declaratory relief. So we have, we, we've got it. She's basically, uh, it was actually a 61 page ruling. <laughs> it took her 61 wow. pages and four weeks to tell us no. So she was very thorough and she wanted to make sure that we had a roadmap towards the win of our appeal. So where we're at right now is we have appealed in the eighth circuit. We have our case number, all that stuff's in my ballot access tab. And, uh, I hope you check it out and you know, we're just moving through the legal process, but okay. we Fingers will win our them. appeal. Yeah, we will win our appeal. I'm very, very confident. They're fighting. They're trying really hard to make it so we can't, and because they know we're going to win. Uh, but we will win the appeal, and we will have ballot access. All right. Well, keep us posted. And thanks for coming on the show, Dan.